This episode, I'm joined once again by writer and occultist John Michael Greer to discuss his book, The Wealth of Nature, Economics as if Survival Mattered, alongside discussions on economics, the free market, consumerism, peak oil, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast and keep it going indefinitely, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, John Michael Greer, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Well, thank you for having me on again. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, a book of yours, but more so probably just a topic. So the book we're discussing is The Wealth of Nature, Economics as if Survival Mattered, uh, which was published by New Society Publishers in May 2011, but mm-hmm. uh, probably getting republished sometime in the near future. We may get into that. Oh, later. it, it, is, it, it is, is getting republished. Okay. Yes, Founders House will have a new edition out um, in um, this year. Um, probably this summer. The, being a small press, it's not hampered by some of the, the sort of um, process that makes big publishers so slow. And so, yeah, um, they are just there in the final stages of bringing out um, The Ecotechnic Future, which was another book of mine that New Society had and then and, and, and let go of. And so The Wealth of Nature will be um, available shortly. I will be making an announcement on my, on my um, Dream With journal to let everyone know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Sort of, I guess, more we will just be talking about the topic, which really Mm -hmm. isn't, you know, and I don't mean this personally to either of us, but I mean, isn't all that fun to talk about? Isn't, Mm -hmm. I know from experience, isn't fun to write about and is probably the, uh, the, the, I best call it a pastime, which is rife with the most errors, which is economics, right? Now, (laughs) the dismal science, the dismal science, the, Oh God! I have to do the economics section of this thing I'm writing, which is you know the bit yours leave to last. So I'll get this question out of the way, which I think is a two-part question, which is the same question really. Which is one: what is economics commonly considered to be, and two: what do you think economics actually is? Okay, um, economics. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, there are three or four different ways to answer that, and some of them are pretty snarky. So we can start with that one. Um, economics claims to be a science. It claims to be the science of how um, wealth is, distri- is created, distributed, and, and transferred in, our, in, in any society, especially ours. Um, it claims to be impartial. It claims to be objective. It is none of these things as it currently exists. Um, the, the problem with economics is that it's one of those studies that um, can almost never be honest, uh, especially, especially economics. Because when you talk about economics, as when you talk about political science, as when you talk about sociology, what you're really talking about is power. You're talking about who has the power to do what, who has the power to deny other people the right to do something. You're talking about who gets the money and who gets the shaft. Um, and those are in every society that, that has a distribution of wealth at all, basically any society beyond the hunter-gatherer level, that's going to be a loaded issue because there's always going to be fraud. There's always going to be um, the abuses of power. There's always going to be some people who get things they don't deserve and some people who deserve things they don't get. And if you want to 
to um, make a comfortable living as a professor of economics or as a writer of books on economics or as an economist, um, you had better not mention these things because the people who are hiring you are by and large the people who are benefiting from the existing system. So by and large, if you put together, if you make make a stack of books on economics, you're looking at um, a spectacular collection of palpable, of palpable lies and of total nonsense. Um, and the, the value of economics is that sometimes you can look past that. You can look past the hand-waving and past the, the transparent attempts to justify um, plunder of one form or another and, and see the actual patterns at work. And so we can say that what economics claims to be is an objective science of, of, of wealth and its peregrinations. Um, what economics is usually in practice is, motive, is a form of propaganda justifying the existing order or justifying somebody else's claims to a bigger share of the pie. And, and that, of course, that's the thing that makes all of this so difficult because, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where next to nobody is telling the truth, it's very difficult to, to kind of dig your way through it. So in that sense, then, what is the economy? Just so we have, we have these two terms, you know, okay. somewhat defined um, before we go in. Okay. And here again, there's what the economy is considered and what the economy is. What the economy is considered to be is the set of structures in hum a human society that produces and distributes various forms of wealth. Um, wealth meaning here anything that people value, um, you know, whatever. A, a, an, an electronic billy bass that, that twitches its head and tail and sings songs off key is wealth to somebody who actually wants one. I have no idea who these people are, but these things are made and sold. So clearly, um, you know, it's, it's clearly that's wealth for somebody. Um, now, what that's what economy is understood as, and it's, that's actually a little more accurate than some things you'll find. What economy, what the economy actually is, is a dependence, a dependency on nature. Everything in, in the economic world is dependent on nature. And so the economy is a way in which human beings take certain streams of energy and resources out of the natural world and put them to their own use. If you understand that, you understand something that most economists miss completely. And it's something that's absolutely crucial to understand the situation we're in as, as a species, as society, and as individuals. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... It's uh, it's well known now. I mean, you've you've mentioned it quite a few times in this podcast that politically you're you're sort of closest aligned with a Burkean conservatism. Is there a that's correct? Is there an economic uh, system or school that you would say that you're closest to? Yes, and and that adds a certain amount of humor to the whole thing because the economic the economics that I'm most closely aligned to um, tends to be more associated with the other end of the political spectrum, and that is the economics of E.F. Schumacher. Um, author of Small is Beautiful and a variety of other works. Um, the, uh, he's the inventor of the concept of intermediate technology. And his specifically, his, the essays of his that were combined in his book, Small is Beautiful, were the inspiration for this book of mine, and more generally. Now, this does not, if this does not sound like a conservative point of view, I well, you know, there's a lot of people who use the word conservative these days, and they use it very, very loosely. Mm -hmm. um, if 
somebody is going to call themselves themselves conservatives, I want to know what they what they think they're conserving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because certainly, I, I I don't follow the I don't follow the vagaries of the political scene in Britain anything like as much as I do here in the United States, since I have to I have to deal with it more directly. But here we have an enormous number of of people who call themselves conservatives who literally don't seem to have conserved anything in their lives. Oh, ours are the same. Um, ours are the same. Yeah, well, there we go. You know, it's all, it's all, you know, um, industry should have the right to waste, to, to lay waste to everything, including human lives, as long as, as long as, you know, they make large profits. This is not a conservative point of view. A conservative point of view says, okay, what are the good things about the situation that we now have? How can we sustain them? What are the good things about the situation we had in the recent past that have been lost due to idiotic policies? How can we regain them? And so, for this reason, a genuine conservatism, a genuine Burkean conservative, looks at the economic situation that we're in, the, the claims that are being made about the economy, and little things like um, how do people support themselves, how do people provide themselves with goods and services that they need, and um, what are the examples where this has been done in an intelligent way, a sustainable way, a conservative way, a way that conserves? And how can we maximize that and minimize um, sheer waste just so that some blowhard in, in a corner office somewhere um, can point to an abstract number and say, we made this big of a profit? Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the irony is, and I mean, I've, I've finished uh, rereading Burke's considerations on the revolution in France mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of months ago. The irony Good. is that, that those people who consider him these days, at least, or Burkean conservatism these days, hit uh, Burke as this sort of um, cornerstone of the far right, which I mm-hmm. don't really think is entirely true. Maybe you'll disagree with me. No, not, Actually, when not you read all. that, and if I read his his biography, which was written by Jesse Norman as well, he mm-hmm. was he was extremely liberal for his day, mm-hmm. extremely liberal. And, I, you know, I don't think he's really anything to do with what people consider, quote-unquote, far-right, whatever that is. No, no. The, the extent that the far-right has um, has antecedents, you find them in continental conservatism, not in the Anglo-American tradition. It's very much the Joseph Lemaistre kind of people, the, the idea that um, there is a divine order to the world and we must drag people back to it. And this was a concept that made Burke, would have made Burke roll his eyes. Um, his his point of view was simply that history tells us what will more or less function, and he, you know we have some examples, we have some evidence, we have this experience that has shown us that these things work and these things don't. And so when some you know some some radical comes charging and saying no, we have to change everything to fit this crackpot idea I've just come up with, the appropriate thing to do is said that's a, that's very nice. Uh, now you know like test it or give us some evidence that this won't be the complete disaster, that we all know that it will. And unfortunately, a lot of what, what has happened in, to conservatism in the Anglo-American world, in the English-speaking world generally, is that after so many years of facing off against the Marxists who have their ideology, who have their, their vision of a perfect society, an embarrassing number of conservatives have become a kind of a reflection of Marxism. They've got their ideology. They've got their free market um, utopia, that, and they insist on, on ramming that down people's throats, whether it works or not. And, of course, it doesn't. <laughs> um, 
we know from centuries of brutal experience that if you let the free market run amok, it does in fact run amok, and you end up with um, well the the kind of, of conditions for the working the working poor that gave rise to the the adjective Dickensian. Okay, so that's that's already been tried. We know it doesn't work. A conservative approach would conserve the things that do work, which is um, an economy under under reasonable but not extreme government regulation, which and and the 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 provision of a, of a basic social safety net. These things work. We've seen that they work. They got rid of some of the ugliest slums on the planet, in the, both in your, in your country and in mine. And um, and a, genuine, a genuinely conservative viewpoint would look at that and say, okay, now, so that's a gain. We know that that works. And here are some other things that were, that were done along the same lines that didn't work. Okay, jettison those. And, but, but try getting that across to people who, who, have, who have convinced themselves that the way to be political is to adopt some kind of crackpot utopian ideology and ram it down people's throats. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's two things there. I mean, one is, is is probably just a personal point, which we we don't have to touch on. But because I'm a huge fan of his writings, I would I would enjoy a, a maybe a brief comment on on your opinion of Joseph Demest. Um, I would have to go back and re- it's been long enough since I've reread him or since I've read him in the first place. And generally, I would have to go back and do a lot of rereading on the, of the continental conservative tradition. I, I may have misunderstood it. Most of what I see is its echoes in, um, in much later writers. Um, for example, the, the capital T traditionalists who I've had some reason to study of late. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you, are you on about like Genon and, and these figures? Genon and Evola and, and Fritjof Schoen and so on, yeah. Um, in, in, my, in the other side of my work, in the, in the esoteric and occult side of my work, there's, there's a steady drumbeat of people who are very interested in the traditionalists. And so I'm constantly being asked questions. Well, what do you think about, about what Evola said about this? What do you think about what Genon said about that? And so... You know, you can't really unless unless you just want to roll your eyes and walk away, which which isn't really constructive. If you're in my business, you have to you have to be conversant with their ideas. Okay, okay. Maybe they'll come back in somehow. We'll see. But jumping back to the free market, so the mm-hmm. the fact that certain limitations allowed us to not descend into, as you say, a sort of a Dickensian uh, split of wealth so severe that mm-hmm. there is slums and there is sort of aristocracy, etc. What would you make of those people who say that, you know, we have on one side, we have those who say real communism has never been tried. And I would, of course, argue absolutely it has. But on the other side, we also have those who say real capitalism hasn't been tried. You know, the free market <laughs> hasn't been truly freed. Is Do you well, think there's anything, any truth to that? No. Um, Adam Smith explained why that's not true in the pages of the Wealth of, of, the wealth of Nations. He pointed out that whenever people in the same business get together, even for a social event, um, you can be absolutely sure they're going to plot some way to rip off the public. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a free market because there, because there cannot be such such a thing as a free market because it, you could do it. If, I, I suppose if there is an economy in heaven staffed entirely by angels. Um, you might have an actually free market. But the first job of any capitalist in any market system whatsoever is to replace the free market with an oligopoly or a monopoly, at which point it stops being free. It becomes a situation where producers control the economy and jack up prices as far as they want. 
Um, so the, the free market is like anarchist politics. It's this ideal condition which simply doesn't work in practice because there's no way to prevent it from being abused. It's subject precisely to uh, Garrett Hardin's um, tragedy of the commons. And so, and that's exactly the problem. Um, in the sort of the sort of Dickensian nineteenth-century version of capitalism, where there were very, very few controls over um, the power of of the rich, the capitalists, to abuse the working classes, and so on, um, you had you you had that. Um, abuse of power as a constant feature. You did not have a situation where individual laborers could bargain on, a, on an equal basis with the people who offered them jobs because the people who offered them jobs could leave them to starve or you know, call in um, government troops or, or strike breakers from private corporations to beat them up and kill them if they got out of line. So you so so you immediately go from this this fantasy of a free market to a reality of coercion and violence and and exploitation doesn't work. Um, anytime anybody says X has not been tried, um, you can basically assume that they're shoveling smoke, because almost certainly what happens is that X has been tried and it failed repeatedly, and so they're trying to say well what they're trying to say is well these policies have never achieved the goal they were trying to, the free market capitalist society of our dreams, the communist society of our dreams, pure democracy. There are many different things. And that's because these are unattainable utopian fantasies. And so they may have, they, so you can't try them in a sense that would satisfy the people who, who, who think they want these things. So anarcho-capitalists are doubly silly. Okay. Anarcho, every anarcho-capitalist I've ever met desperately wanted to be one of the very, very rich people riding roughshod over everyone else. Now, they may not have admitted that publicly, but if you get, you know, share a few beers and, and get them talking, and pretty soon it's very clear that their idea is that anarcho-capitalism is their way to become insanely rich, do whatever they want, and, you know, and stomp everyone else into the mud. Okay, okay. So that's, that's been my experience. I, I could, you know, your mileage may vary, but that's been my experience. No, yeah, I can sympathize. There's a sort, a sort of undertow of greed and a yearning, mm -hmm. yearning for a system which allows greater greed. Yeah, we, which allows completely unchecked greed and exploitation. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> the irony that I always found with anarcho-capitalists as well is that the anarcho part gets sort of overshot in the sense, or overlooked in the sense that as soon as they're within that system absolutely everything is abiding by even more laws of course you know <laughs> so uh, well, it's, it's, you're going from the state laws which admittedly some of them might not be so good but then you end up in this this world of just i don't know it just seems hellish in terms of laws and restrictions of, of private laws which mm -hmm. is actually the, the if if you take the latin verb that that's the word privilege privy lege Privilege is a system of private law, laws that apply to some people and not to others. And so anarcho-capitalism, the anarcho is, is hand-waving. Because what will happen immediately thereafter is as soon as some people get vastly more wealth than others, they will, their, will, their word becomes law for all practical purposes. And then we're basically back in the Middle Ages. Mm. But there does seem to be some value in, in the, the roots of, of that tradition in terms of the Austrian school you know you already mentioned this mm. idea of value in terms of you know we've spoken before about the the dancing Santa Claus animatronic thing or the you know mm -hmm. the, the 
Seabass that you screw to the wall and price and it sings. There oh. is abiding, you know, abiding by other systems such as Keynesian or Marxist, that those things are either related to abstract price or value whereas at least in the austrian tradition they 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 admit what you admitted there at the start which is mm-hmm. value is subjective yeah val- yeah that's it's one of the great things i mean the austrian system has its problems um, every again by by the term in the terms i mentioned earlier you can assume that every system of economics is either propaganda for the existing order or propaganda for people who want a bigger cut of the pie mm-hmm. but the you know to the extent that the austrian school has stressed the fact that value is is not an abstract an abstraction is not an objective quality of anything it purely talk it purely is a way of referring to the fact that people want something mm-hmm. You know, um, why, for example, for most of us, a piece of underwear belonging to a pop star has no value. But I promise to their fan, to the fans of that pop star, that thing has immense value. You can't, and you're right, you cannot, you cannot fit that into a Keynesian or a Marxist viewpoint. You just have to accept the fact that, you know, people want what they want and they're willing to give value, give other things in exchange to get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in what sense have, economic predictions ever helped of the, is it just simply a way to uh bolster the, that that personal bias well the, the the major thing about economic predictions whether they help is one thing and, and they do in a certain wry roundabout sense which i'll get to but the most consistent thing about economic predictions is mm-hmm. that they're wrong um the, the the running joke after the um, after the housing crash in two thousand eight two thousand nine was what do you call an economist who expresses an opinion wrong <laughs> and it was true um, <clears throat> let's see who was it I think it was Nassim Nouriel Roubini the author of the Black Swan and various other good books who was saying that he he'd several times given speeches to rooms full of economists talking about how this was an obvious speculative bubble that it was going to go up and pop and crash in the usual way and they were all looking looking at him as though he had sprouted two extra heads Hmm. now in point of fact it was screechingly obvious to anybody but an economist or the people who believed them that that the the housing bubble was a bubble it was behaving exactly like a bubble Um, there were people all over the internet um, Keith Brand's housing housing panic blog was the one that I watched most carefully. It had tens of thousands of, of readers who were all agreeing, "Oh my God, yeah, this is a total bubble. It's going to crash sometime very soon. Um, property values are going to plunge. Millions of people are going to be ruined." And every single day, you had people coming in there who claimed to have a background in economics and saying, "No, that's not true. This is," and it was hilarious. And this, but and this is not the only time this has happened. I remember it happening in the run up to the '87 crash. I remember it happening in the run up to the 1999-2000 tech stock crash. The only people who consistently fail to grasp the fact that a speculative bubble is happening are people with background in economics. Mm-hmm. So, in point of fact, an economics uh, an economics degree seems to make people stupid when it comes to the behavior of speculative markets. You can see this in many other contexts, and this does make economic prediction very useful in one um, kind of um, backhanded way. If you hear an economist saying this is going to happen, you know that it's not going to happen. If you hear an economist saying this this rise in value is 
you know, is a perfectly healthy growth of a market, assume that it's a bubble. You will be right far more often than not. And I think it was Robert Heinlein, the science fiction writer, who said that if you know if you have if you want to make good good decisions in in an upcoming election and you don't have time to do the research, find a well-meaning fool, ask what he thinks, and then vote exactly the the opposite way. And in in this way, economists generally, especially not not only not not only but especially in the macroeconomics field, economists are the well-meaning fools of the world of money. Find out what they're saying, do the opposite, and you'll thrive. Hmm. Reminds me of that joke. How do you know if a politician is lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> His lips are moving exactly, yeah. and, and it's, it's a very similar situation because politicians, again, have absolutely no reason to tell the truth, and absolutely and every reason imaginable. To, to shovel smoke, um, their their power, their um, position, their hopes of of attaining a higher position later on, all depend on um, convincing various power centers that they will benefit the um, you know the said power centers more than the other clod, and so you know shoveling smoke and 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 handing out nonsense is part of that job. In a way, you can think of politicians as kind of the public relations agents of the um, of the status quo. Their job is to convince people that everything's okay, especially when it's not, and to convince people that their interests will be served by supporting this faction rather than that faction of the of, of the elite, even when you know the voters are going to are going to get shafted either way. But that's the thing for politicians, what they're saying, absolutely every single facet of their life rides on that, you know, their status, their exactly. power, their job, their exactly. income, everything. So they, once you're in that, once you have mm -hmm. the power, which is really how the left works, which is give mm -hmm. power to people who are disenfranchised and they will do anything to, to cling to it. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there is no, as you say, there is absolutely no reason for them to not just pull out any stops to keep, to find any way to oh, exactly. retain their power. Well, it's Lord Ackland's comment, power corrupts. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 he's right. And you can see that in every political system. But it's, it's, it's interesting what you say about um, people seeing bubbles. I, I always love watching, but I mean, the Bitcoin bubble in real time was very enjoyable. <sighs> and I mean, mm -hmm. I actually remember, I, I, before this, this um, chat uh, a couple of days ago i went back to the the blog post on your uh, so what, what would that have been that would have been 20 december 2017 just before the first big crash and mm -hmm. i remember you posting something about people buying bitcoin on credit and people wearing bitcoin jumpers you know and, mm -hmm. and basically these absolute clear as day red flags and this mm -hmm. this reminds me you know and obviously as you said at the time every economist even though the, even though what was in front of everyone's eyes was clear as day what was going to happen next it took you know that certain collective agency to be able to manifest something which said otherwise right which is what mm -hmm. the economists were doing but it reminds exactly. me of uh one of my favorite quotes which i came across recently and it's applied to basically just a whole host of situations and it's from uh the the mystic writer alfred orage and he says mm -hmm. the last degree of esoteric teaching is plain common sense <laughs> which i think is absolutely perfect right you wade through yes. you wade yes. through the muck for years and years you know studying everything and eventually you get to the end and go yeah this was the stuff which your gut was telling you right at the yeah. beginning but you have to but the thing is common sense is a very uncommon mm -hmm. um 
acquisition is fed, you know, in, in an age of, in an age of universal hand waving, um, there, there is not much common sense to be had these days. And so, yeah, getting to the point where was it? Oh, the Discworld guy, I'm forgetting his name. Terry early. Yes, Terry Pratchett. Um, one of one of his which characters had um, not the second but the first sight, which is the capacity to see what is actually in front of your face, which is an immense power that most people never achieve. So if you know if esoteric training can get you to the point that you can actually see what's in front of your face and act in accordance with common sense, then it's accomplished miracles. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, and it's I mean. To tie this all tie this back to economics, and I think it's very clear, we can speak of what is in front of our face. Mm-hmm. One truth, which is completely in front of all our faces in terms of economics, which is there is one form of currency, energy. Mm-hmm. That is it. Mm-hmm. Energy. Mm-hmm. Energy. Energy is the currency that matters, and yeah, everything else is a surrogate for it. Everything else is a, a kind of a kind of system of tokens, especially money. Economists get very strange about money. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and in practice, you get people who think that it, you know, if only we have enough money. I mean, the, the quantitative easing that's become such a dominant force in, in, in modern um, economic life these days, um, it's based on the idea that if only we have enough money, everything will be fine. It's very reminiscent of the, the joke about the, the Los Angeles um, Type who's going? Um, I can't be overdrawn on my checking account. I've still got checks left, <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically the attitude of, our, of, of of quantitative easing. You know, there are no problems we can't solve by flooding the market with money, and it's been it, it's it's become addictive. And the fact that it has not caused hyperinflation is, I think, something we need to pay very close attention to because what that shows is that money is going into the system and money, so a significant amount of money must be hemorrhaging out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you, could you and, expand on that just for those who oh, sure. might not know the complexities of what you're talking about? Then? Okay. Well, basically, um, to start with, infl- there's a lot of hand-waving about inflation and, and so on, but what, what inflation is – too much money chasing too few products. Um, you, when you have, when, when the money supply goes up, if the availability of goods and services doesn't go up to match, you have inflation because the, um, people can charge more and they will charge more. And so there's been, with quantitative easing, there's been an immense amount of money created by hand waving, created of thin air by, by the electronic equivalent of spinning the presses. In the United States, especially, there's fantastic quantities of money. Our, our government basically runs by by um, funding its its deficit by way of the printing press, and yet this is not cause. Well, now we're getting some significant inflation, but nothing like what you would expect from what has it been well over a decade now of gargantuan quant- quote quantitative easing. Um, activities and the manufacture of money in, in gargantuan amounts. Um, so that money money must be leaving the economy at something like the pace that it was entering it, or you would have that. What is almost certainly happening here, what all the evidence suggests is happening, is that it's going into, into the illegal economy, and it's also being siphoned off into various people's pockets. 
The reason we have these godzillionaires who have their private space programs and so on is precisely that they are able to extract all this extra money from the, from the economy. And the fact that all of these asset classes are soaring endlessly in price, these are ways that money is being pumped out of the economy into essentially worthless assets, paper, um, you know, uh, paper of this kind, paper of that kind, um, and being stashed there. Now, how long can it continue? We simply don't know. It has not happened in the past that this kind of thing has been developed with such complexity. Um, the, the normal outcome sooner or later is that all those asset classes, a question of their value comes up, people start trying to sell, and down everything comes in a hurry. But we don't know yet. We simply don't know which way the, the, the current experiment is to some extent unprecedented, and we don't know what's going to happen. Do you think Do you think there actually is anyone who knows, or do you think we've um, oh, sort of rushed nobody... ourselves into such a complexity that we just go, right, no, you oh. know, uh, emperor's new clothes situation? Nobody can know, um, because you, certainly we can come up with grandiose theories, and I'm sure if you go down to, uh, you know, the economic departments of half a dozen, half a dozen universities, um, in your country or mine, you can find at least 30 different theories as to exactly what that's going to do, all of which insist that it's a good thing because it makes the rich richer, <laughs> whether they admit that that's what's going on or not. Um, but as to do we know what's going to happen? No, Socrates, we do not. We will simply have to wait and see. It has not been tried before. And as we have seen, the experts do not have a very good track record predicting um, the behavior of complex systems. Mm-hmm. But this is so what seems to be happening then in in the language that you use in your book is mm-hmm. we are having a, a sort of battle between we're hemorrhaging wealth in, mm-hmm. for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's 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 duck back and talk a little bit about the, about the division in the book. What I do, what I talk about in the book is a division of three economies rather than one. There is the tertiary economy, which is what most people think about in terms of economics, it's money. The tertiary economy is, is things like inflation and deflation. It's how, what's the money supply like? How fast is money moving? All the things that economists track. Okay. The secondary economy is the economy of goods and services. The actual things that people use, not financial services or financial um, goods, but things like houses and um, teacups and um, you know, getting somebody to come fix your plumbing things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the secondary economy. And the primary economy is nature. The primary economy is sun and wind, soil and green things growing, um, water flowing into and out of hydroelectric dams, but not the dams themselves. Those are secondary economy. All of the natural systems that make the, the secondary and tertiary economies possible are the primary economy. That's the real economy. The real economy is the environment. So what we have going on now, and what we had going on actually when I originally wrote The Wealth of Nature, is that the tertiary economy, the economy of money, has metastasized. This has become gargantuanly more more complex, more heavily overloaded, more more intrusive than in any previous civilization. In most human civilizations, most economic transactions have nothing to do with money. Um, people make things and use them. That's an economic transaction. 
Um, people make things and give them to people or, or, or barter them or um, there's, there are gift economies, there are um, customary exchange economies, there are all these ways, there are household economies that people can produce and consume goods and services that have nothing to do with money. One of the things that makes our situation so fascinating is that ours is the first civilization in, in known history to have tried to convert every economic activity into something for which you have to have money. Mm-hmm. And so, what? but what's been going on lately, the tertiary economy has not been doing well. The secondary economy is not doing well. It's become increasingly hard to get goods and services, to get uh, goods and services of any quality or in some cases at all. Um, and so the, because economists have been trained to think that there's only one economy and it's money, the, the standard approach to that is, okay, we need to get more money into circulation, whether we're going to hand it out to banks, whether we're going to hand it out to people, whether we're going, you know, all of these things, it's all flood the economy with money and that will fix everything. And it hasn't, and it's not going to. It's set in motion various imbalances of its own. In some cases, it's patched over things temporarily. But so we have this incredible amount of money. Um, and, and here, especially, you know, as, as, as an American, I'm watching here the U.S. dollar, which is the de facto global currency. Most other central banks, uh, central banks of other countries have gargantuan amounts of it. And there's a huge amount that's flowing here and there through various legal, semi-legal and illegal economic exchanges. Your basic drug dealer is mostly taking money in U.S. You know, and in U.S. currency. And that's all flowing to various places. It's going to London. It's going to Hong Kong. It's going to Singapore, where it can be laundered and, and, and sent elsewhere. So you have these gargantuan amounts of money, all of which claims to be a claim on goods and services. Because that's all money is. Money is a set of tokens that gives you a claim on a certain amount of goods and services. You have a 10-pound bill. That's worth a certain amount of goods or services. And yet the economy of goods and services is not in very good shape these days. And so there are real questions about can those claims actually be honored, especially, again, in the case of of the, the U.S. currency? There's a lot of claims out there. How many of them can actually be honored? There's, I mean, there's more money in circulation right now than there are goods and services in the world by several orders of magnitude. What's going to happen when any fraction of that starts trying to be cashed in? Life gets complicated. There are those who are, who are seeking to save, you know, fix this problem. And I speak mm-hmm. of, of Bitcoin, which actually I think we spoke about in our very first chat. Mm-hmm. however many years mm-hmm. ago it was now um but this adheres to the same problem right is that what's behind it is basically just a usage of uh limited fossil fuels yeah well the the, the idea of bit i mean the idea of having a having an independent currency that people use purely because they choose to use it um that in itself is not a bad idea and the idea that it needs to be limited in some way so that um you can't just produce as much of it as you want. That's also very sensible. But the fact that they've set it up so that Bitcoin mining is done by the mass consumption of fossil fuels, so you have you know factories all over all over Asia churning out coal smoke to produce Bitcoins, that's become one kind of, of um, 
source of disruption. Also, of course, once it started catching on, people wanted to in, wanted to speculate using it. People piled into it on the hopes that the price would go up. The price then went up. We probably still have a lot of downside ahead. Um, it would not surprise me if Bitcoin were to go up further, possibly in one more gargantuan spike, possibly more than one, before it finally drops down to whatever its final level is going to be. Um, but the idea of alternative of, of independent of government independent alternative currencies is, I think, a basically a good one. It's simply that that one and some of the others now, of course, have become speculative um, vehicles, and that's going to involve some very dramatic wobbles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, the, 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 that's not due to the, the actual sort of function of the currency itself. That's back no. to the the fiat. No, uh, it's on the yeah on the it's it's on the one hand to be in the case of Bitcoin. On the one hand, it's because it's dependent on fossil fuels. And on the other hand, because it's become a speculative vehicle. The basic concept is, I think, as I said, a, a potentially a good one. Mm -hmm. So, so why? Because, oh, sorry. Because because the thing is. If you have a range of possible currencies available, then if one of them, like say the U.S. dollar, were to implode, you're not you don't necessarily get lost, left with all your eggs in one basket. And so, for that reason, I, I quite understand people who are trying to spread out their investments through a whole range of currencies. But go on. Well, it, it leads to the big question, you know, because it's across all currencies, uh, of course. Is, is why do we ignore the primary? economy which is nature you know in favor mm -hmm. of the tertiary economy mm. well i mean the thing is that's hardwired into into our into, um, in, into our western culture at this point the idea the, the pervasive idea at the heart of our of our modern western industrial culture is that nature is just a passive lump of stuff that is there for us to do whatever we want to with it it can't possibly react it can't possibly do something we don't tell it. There's this bizarre fixation on the individual ego is the only thing that can act, and everything else in the world must be passive to it. It's kind of the, ideal, the ideology of the really, really spoiled five-year-old hmm. who goes into a shrieking tantrum when anything doesn't obey whatever said uh, spoiled five-year-old wants it to do. And so this is kind of hardwired into our culture these days. Um, and this, this is actually something we see in, in issues of social class. Um, and watching people in the managerial class deal with the fact, or rather avoid, desperately avoid dealing with the fact, that people in the working classes and the poor know perfectly well that they're being lied to and mm -hmm. can't just be talked out of it. it it's hilarious. I recall when um, there, there have been a whole series of studies over the last um, decade or so when you know, they've taken a bunch of working class people and shown them a video meant to convince them of something. And the working class people come out and saying they're, they're even more convinced that they're being lied to. Yeah, that's, and fairly, so, that's fairly common with the working class. Exactly. Because they know better. Because they've been lied to by people in suits how many times? Mm. <laughs> and so, um, yes. The working class, but the thought that they that the working class might have learned from their experience is anathema to the managerial class, and so they have to come up with these complicated psychological theories to explain why people aren't doing what they're aren't being perfectly passive puppets in the face of this this, this clueless and usually ham-fisted propaganda. It, it's very reminiscent of back back in the um, before the American Civil War. Um, 
African American slaves in in the South would would attempt to run away and, and get across into the North and and into Canada ultimately, um, so they could in order to win their freedom. And in the South, you couldn't talk about that because it was it was absolutely required to believe that the slaves are perfectly happy being slaves. Of course, they weren't, but that was the propaganda. They couldn't possibly object to their treatment. Therefore. Um, Psychologists came up with this bizarre mental illness called drapetomania, which was the irrational compulsion to run away from home, which for some reason a lot of African-American slaves were afflicted by this, this strange mental compulsion. This is exactly the same logic that you're hearing from the managerial classes these days trying to figure out why people are, are you know, voting for the wrong person, quote, wrong person, unquote, why they're, they're not listening to their, um, their swatism betters. Um, when said um, betters lecture them on what they ought to think. Mm-hmm. But once again, we return to this peculiar thing we've we've spoken of before, which I, you know, we'll probably never get to the root mm-hmm. of it. But it's very interesting, you know, this idea of, um, you know, the managerial class sort of saying, basically making it clear that there is a certain way people should be thinking and feeling and and doing mm-hmm. and whatever. And yet, you know, they do these surveys and ask all the questions, and that. When the evidence comes out completely in the opposite direction, they still don't alter anything in that direction, but somehow phrase it to seem absurd. You know, 10 out of yeah. 20 people want this, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I, I mentioned in our last chat that the, the recent Guardian article of uh, something like more and more young men are returning to the church because it gives them meaning. And they phrased it as if this was some sort of crazy surprise, right? And this is quite a common thing <laughs> that blindingly obvious yes. things to yeah. those who are in the common working class and you go well yeah you know mm-hmm. yeah but but you you have to understand that there are two forces that make it impossible for the managerial classes to see to exercise the first sight and see what's right in front of their faces the first is the conviction that they know the truth mm-hmm that whatever their opinion happens to be, however cockamamie it might be, they know the truth, and anyone who disagrees with them is just plain wrong. That's central. That's not just an opinion. It's central to their, to the, to their identity. The managerial class it has built its whole function as a modern aristocracy, which, of course, is what it is, around the idea that they know what to do. They know how to run things. They're the ones who know better. And so confront them with that, with evidence that they don't know better. They can't process it because you're challenging their the, the core of their identity as as social beings. Mm-hmm. So there's that on the one hand, and there is this this assumption of passivity on the part of everything outside the individual ego, and. So, you know, the working class can't possibly have looked at, you know, the, these, these young men who are, go, who, are, who are returning to the church. They can't possibly have, have listened to, um, you know, the, the rantings of the various um, rationalist um, spokesflags and so on and said, well, you know, that really doesn't make any sense to me. And they can't actually have, um, you know, visited a church and say, you know, this makes me feel like there's more meaning to life. No, 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 because people aren't, you know, people outside the managerial class aren't supposed to have that capacity. They're passive objects to be moved about by us because we know how to do things. This is taught to them in the schools. It is taught to them in the universities. It's pervasive in their workplaces. It, 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 it's the force that gives them meaning. And so to lose that, 
to be to suddenly realize that they don't know how the world works that all they have are a bunch of theories that don't actually work that well that they don't know how to run things it's you're, you're asking them to surrender the, the most basic conception of their being and they won't do it and so we have the, the kind of idiocies that we've been discussing mm-hmm. and i think one other factor there is that the majority of working class people have a more direct na- uh, connection to nature in the sense of mm-hmm. economics that we've been talking about. You know, this, this oh, middle, yeah. middle management, aristocracy, managerial class are sort of born and live and are subsumed into this mentality of the, the tertiary economics, you know, yes. spreadsheets, numbers, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Working class people, and I've been there myself, know what it is mm-hmm. to have, you know, this is my last money and I need to eat. And by that, you, yeah. you, you understand from that, you go, these are the things which are truly important in life. Oh, yeah. And it, it yeah. teaches you common sense very quickly. Oh, yeah. Being poor is something that I recommend everybody should go through at least once in their lives. Um, I had the huge advantage of going into a career as a writer. And, you know, all those <laughs> jokes about writers living in garrets and so on, it's true. The first 10 years of a writing career, you're going to be eating a lot of rice and beans because it's not until you get a good backlog of things in print that the money starts coming in. So, but, but I recommend it because if you are actually seriously poor, poor enough that you have to budget if you want food on the table. Mm-hmm. then, yeah, common sense dawns. Um, there was, this is, this is getting back a ways, um, Timothy Leary mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Hallucinatory Memory had a thing that he called the hydrodynamic theory of money, which is that money naturally flows wherever it's needed, and that if you need money, you just have to kind of be open to it and it will show up. And this is how you can tell that he was a member of the upper middle classes, yeah. that he was a child of privilege. Because I can tell you for a fact that the poor and the working and working people know perfectly well that no money does not just show up because you want it. And yet, Leary spoke for a generation and a class who had gotten into that trip and who did not made a point of not noticing their own condition of privilege, of class privilege, which enabled them to get money whenever they needed it by simply, you know, calling on their privilege. So, you know, there are still people who are stuck in that rut. Well, you know, not to... Uh, well, I will ruffle feathers with this. But Go ahead. to the, the boomer generation in generally is still oh, God. mostly stuck in that you know they don't realize they were in the anomaly in history i remember working a just a basic retail job when i was younger and uh, Mm -hmm. the job itself could only just about working full-time could only just about afford me the basics of of living and that was sort of renting a a room a shared Mm -hmm. in a shared house where the a woman i was working with had worked the same job as me since high school and had uh with along with her husband but had a a three bedroom house semi detached house with two cars and she mm-hmm. couldn't she couldn't see that it was nothing to do with work ethic or pulling up my bootstraps yeah. uh something had had good wrong which which is you know the the big talking point at the moment which is why can't a single person household on a basic full time job afford the necessities needed to live Mm-hmm. And no one wants mm-hmm. to deal with this, both in the no UK one... and the US. No one wants to oh, yes. look no. that in the face. And... It's the, it is the most explosive question of our time, because the reason for it, of course, is that working class wages have been systematically driven down rel- relative to the cost of living for the last 50 years. 
and it's been driven down, and it's bipartisan. Uh, it, you know, it's not that one party has driven it down and the other party has held it up. Both parties in both countries have smiled and nodded while the working classes were ground face first into the mud. And it's a, it's, it is the most important political fact of our time. It is the one that nobody wants to touch. And that's one of the reasons that I keep on talking about it. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, there's, there's, there's a crucial point here having to do with actually the tertiary economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't have a functioning consumer economy when too many of the consumers are too poor to buy anything. And so, if you allow real estate prices to be driven up to insane levels, so that nobody nobody can afford to rent, or those who can are putting every spare every spare penny they've got into rent, and therefore they can't afford to buy anything else except a little rice and beans to hold body and soul together. That looks really great if you own real estate, but it's a disaster for society as a whole. if real estate prices, if, if the various legal props that keep real estate prices inflated were to be pulled out, and real estate prices were to come down to a level compared to incomes, as they were, say, in the 1950s or in the 1920s, then all of a sudden a lot of people would have much more money to spend and the consumer economy would thrive. But that would not be to the benefit of the, of the interests of the classes that own real estate, and so they're not, they're not having any of it. And in the same way, you can apply the same thing across the board to every situation where wages have been driven down and prices have been driven up for the working classes. If the wages were allowed to rise, if the prices were allowed to follow, those working class people would happily go out and spend lots of money. Mm-hmm. They would happily go out and buy this and you know, buy this product, buy that service, spend money on this, that, and the other thing. Businesses would thrive. You'd have an economic boom. But the people who've been benefiting from the current situation would have to take some hits, and they're not willing to do so. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the exact problems we have in the UK at the moment, which is we have a, a huge demand for properties, mm-hmm. massive demand, especially for young people for properties. Yeah. But the supply is controlled by those who have a monopoly and any mm-hmm. any fluctuation in the prices mm-hmm. they don't want it because they control it and they can also afford to just mm-hmm. sit on it when the, while there is no fluctuation in prices yeah. so it's basically you, buy it yeah. or don't have it and it doesn't affect yeah. the people who already own it because yeah. they're so rich it doesn't matter exactly and this is uh, was it henry george i think who had the single tax idea that um the basic tax should be a tax on owning real estate um, mm. I think he had, there were some problems with his theory, but he had some basic ideas, right, which is that control over land gives you disproportionate power over the economic uh, situation and over, over wealth and over the political world, ultimately. So breaking that down so that um, more people have access to, um, to property ownership and you don't have the same kind of gargantuan rentier class sitting on top of society, uh, pumping it dry. But of course, that's, that politically, that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. It can be done. It will probably be done. Um, especially as um, as we start seeing population, you know, because the world the, the world as a whole is very near its population peak. Europe, the United States, would actually have declining population if if we if not for immigration. And so, as population begins to contract, you're going to start seeing um, airspace open up in the real estate thing. And if if that becomes enough of a political a political issue, yeah, I think I think some of the props can be pulled out from under real estate prices. And we can start seeing a reversion to less, less parasitic modes of economics. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, just jumping back to one thing you said about, uh, you know, the consumer society and purchases. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've I, and this is just anecdotal. Perhaps it's something you've noticed as well. But in recent years, you know, I remember when I was a young boy, a purchase such as a washing machine or a TV or I don't know, a projector or something that was quite fancy, a PC monitor or PC. That would have been a big purchase, and everything else, mm-hmm. relatively, the things you needed weren't were. were relatively affordable but there seems uh-huh. to be a huge flip in recent years you know i walked down the meat aisle and especially in the uk the prices uh-huh. are going uh, going up and the portions are getting smaller per uh-huh. price uh-huh. but then uh-huh. when i look on online or elsewhere for consumer products you know such as tvs etc they're insanely low i'm not sure if something psychological is going on there that perhaps it's sort of a paranoia on my part that I believe that no, people I think, are trying to be controlled, but those types of things seem to be maddeningly cheap. You see, I think that I, I don't think that's, a, that's an accident at all. I think it's a very important sign to watch because what that shows is that the demand for those things has dropped. What that shows is that more and more people are just saying, no, I think I'm going to get one that's used or I'm not going to get one because they can't afford it. And so you're seeing what used to be the high-end purchases having their prices forced down because nobody can afford them anymore. Whereas, um, you know, people still need to eat. Uh, By the way, prices of meat here in the United States are also way up. Mm -hmm. And can can be expected to go much much higher now that we're having the the drought all over the western two-thirds of the country. And that's most of our meat-producing regions. And a lot of people can't get water for their livestock. Mm, I see. So, which so what what diet what diet's coming next? <laughs> um, well, good question. The one that I'm recommending to people is um, the the old fashioned um, well way of living well when you're poor, which usually involves thing, a lot of things like rice and beans with a little meat when you can get it. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. I have to say, I, I thrived on such a diet. I, I still eat um, something much closer to an old-fashioned rural working, you know, Ameri- rural American working person's diet than I do to what I could at least in theory afford. Um, better for your health too. So one of those things. Yeah, I grew up on one of those diets as well. So I still eat. Go. I still eat a lot of liver. Mm-hmm. Well, there <laughs> you go. Ma- yeah. You know, crazy cheap, and it's the best cut for you. Yeah, there you go. You know, and that's and that kind of awareness that you, where you know it's cheap, it's nourishing, it may not be fashionable, but who cares? That that attitude is actually, you know, the people who the people who can embrace it and can follow through on it are actually going to do much better than the people who, who are clinging to the fashionable habits, wealth is bankrupting. Mm-hmm. I mean, to tie a few threads together here, we have this this uh, what we began with this abstract quote unquote economy. We have the <laughs> fact it is backed on fossil fuels, a limited resource. You can't have infinite <laughs> growth on a finite planet, and yet the economy <laughs> and economics generally, I think, unconsciously pushes the idea that there is such a thing, or there can be such a thing if we were <laughs> just to follow them. We also have the third part, which is consumer society. So <laughs> the the to tie them all together, it seems to be that economics basically wants to avoid the fact that consumption is one of the key problems going into our future, mm-hmm. and that there mm-hmm. there can be found some miraculous way where the entire world, specifically Western, uh, can eat its cake and have it too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's one of the ways where you can tell that that 
economists live in la-la land because so many of them are convinced that if we only have enough money, we can have enough goods and services. I mean that quite literally. I, um, back in back during the last round of peak oil um, concern, the next one will be we're a couple of years out probably. But back during the last round, the, there were you'd see articles in the financial press where people were saying, "Look, this is stupid. As long as we invest enough money in, um, you know, in, in discovering new oil reserves, we'll have plenty of oil." And they're saying that with a straight face. As though brandishing about wads of dollar bills could somehow conjure oil into being in the depths of the earth. <laughs> and I'm going, look, I practice ceremonial magic and I know that's stupid. You claim to be a rationalist and you're engaging in this weird superstitious behavior. What is wrong here? <laughs> I like the idea of a sort of a, a, you know, a panicked investor stood by an oil well, literally throwing money at scientists saying, you know, do something because ultimately the, the the logic i guess the logic would that would follow would be if we invest more money into oil mm -hmm. technologies we can develop something which can extract more you know mm -hmm. is able to extract that lower oil and extract more etc cetera, etc cetera. now yeah. on paper that mm -hmm. is uh that's great however as we both know just because you throw a load of money at something at an idea mm -hmm. here's a piece of develop a piece of technology that can get you know the the dregs of these this oil mm -hmm. out and mm -hmm. do it at a better energy rate than you know you know let's say two to one or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just because you you give them a billion pounds doesn't mean it's going doesn't, to happen. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. And especially when you have these awkward little things like the laws of thermodynamics breathing down your neck, saying uh uh, <laughs> and that's the situation we're in. We have we you know we're, we're kind of in the diminuendo days of the fracking debacle here in the United States. Um, the fracking the fracking industry is doing okay at the moment because it's basically stopped developing um, new sites. So they don't have the outgo. So they're making money off their existing stuff. It's become very clear that it's not an answer. It's a temporary stopgap. And it's a temporary stopgap that doesn't pay for itself because the costs are so high. In terms of energy, um, the, the, the net energy returns are sufficiently low. The, cost, the production costs in money or energy are too high. And it's just you can prop it up through political and economic gamesmanship for a while, but it's not a solution. And so that's winding down at this point. And as that happens, expect to see, expect to hear blood curdling cries from um, all of the cornucopian types who are convinced that this or that or the other will prevent us from, you know, running out of oil, even though we're burning a hundred million barrels a day or whatever it is. <laughs> so, what is the what's the current? I haven't really kept up with it lately. What's the current sort of status of peak oil generally? Okay, the current what well, we are we are in the we we would have probably been in an oil crisis by now except for the coronavirus panic which drove consumption down very sharply and dropped the price a bit. Um right now um the benchmark rates the benchmark varieties of oil are in the low $70 a barrel range. Um, Brent is, I think, at seventy. Was at seventy three this morning, seventy three and change. Um, West Texas Intermediate was around seventy one and change. Um, those of those of our listeners who were listening during the last peak oil spike will remember the blood curdling insistence that if the price of oil ever got above fifty dollars a barrel, that would mean the end of the global economy. Obviously, that didn't happen, but. It is not a good sign because what this means is, again, the price of oil has been driven upwards due to declining supply 
and unyielding demand. So um, what I expect to see is that over the next year or so, there will be the usual fluctuations up and down, um, and but more up than down. And so the price will begin climbing a little further and a little further, and then it will start to take jumps upwards, and people will panic. And there will be... Um, Lots of loud news media about um, you know the crisis in oil. We will hear also, um, all of the, the pro nuclear types will come out with their quack nostrum, insisting, yes, you need to you need to throw billions of dollars into new nuclear power plants, despite the fact that no previous nuclear power plant has ever been able to pay for itself. Um, and the the green energy advocates will say you need to throw trillions of dollars into green energy, even though you're buying problems with intermittency and the re- the natural resources needed to build current green technologies are just just ex- just amazingly high and the price of oil will spike it will crash it will bounce up again it will wobble away and and probably probably stabilize somewhere around 100 dollars a barrel <laughs> and 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 we'll all get used to using a chunk less energy or spend spending much more money for it until the next crisis hits mm. i mean it was one of the amazing things from the from from the pandemic and all the lockdowns is the amount of you know and it, it's it's sort of absurdly humorous is the amount mm-hmm. of companies that did did transition to purely online work which was blindingly yeah. obvious for the last probably 10 years and yet yeah. when the pandemic and all the lockdowns have been let up most people even though a lot of people saying oh yeah we love you know blah 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 doing mm-hmm. this type of work most people just got up and sauntered back to the office Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and the, th- and the thing is, the companies could save millions. You could literally not have property. An office. Your- yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You could say you don't have your. You no longer have a sci- a skyscraper to maintain. Um, you could save immense amount of money, but since you know the human beings are social primates and the big baboons in the corner office want to have that those displays of 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 dominance and so on and there are various other things yeah they're just going right back to the business as usual we'll see how long that lasts mm-hmm. no that's what i was going to say you know these all these reports of celebrities or big businessmen taking a flight somewhere for a call and you think eh, it's just status and you you're not going to talk anyone out of that mhm no no, um, it's going to take either really, really drastic shifts in the in the economy or in politics, um, because yeah, as we saw as we saw with the um, with, in, during the virus panic, um, you could, we can eliminate um, private tourist air travel mm-hmm. that could go away tomorrow and we'd say that that right there would cut an incredibly huge amount of carbon out of the atmosphere you want to get us you know heading toward balance that's a great way to do it try talking people into it similarly we could eliminate commuting in most cases probably probably half the commuters could be just the all the office workers could be could simply stay home there again, we've in, we've annihilated this immense quantity of carbon that's, that's being dumped to the atmosphere but even when you point out, well, aren't you, you know, aren't you concerned about global warming? <laughs> it's it's been one of one of the points that I made over and over again that um, you find enormous number of people who are perfectly willing to emote by the hour about global warming, mm-hmm. but don't you dare ask them to do um, well to to give up their SUV or to um, 
to um, give up um, flying to the other side of the planet for their next ecotourism vacation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they've got to have their status symbols, even if, even if it wrecks the planet. And so th- this is why, although I'm, I'm very well aware of the reality of global warming, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the people on the other side of the political spectrum because they're saying, look, if this was, seri- if this was real, you'd be taking it seriously, and you're not. And so looking at that, it, it actually this cycles kind of back to the, man, the whole issue with the managerial class being totally baffled that people don't believe them. Mm-hmm. Because here, here again, we have people who are refusing to live according to their beliefs and then wonder why people don't think they take the beliefs seriously. I think it's because a lot of their beliefs are built off sort of illusory impressions of what that belief actually is sort of hmm. as, a, as, a, as a vision so you, you know what I, I mean can... so when you think of though you know saving the saving the planet saving the <laughs> stopping climate change you think yeah veganism and you know going to these places and saving the rainforest and and etc cetera, etc cetera, these things we've, we we've mentioned but actually the the truth of the matter is much more banal it's staying local it's mm-hmm. not eating a vegan diet because they're not sustainable in most places in the world. Exactly. It's not exactly. going on holiday and it's mm-hmm. not driving and it's mm-hmm. also not purchasing a load of stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah you, you, you don't get to have all those things and no. not destroy the planet. That's not exactly. Possible. No, you um, given that the, the wealthiest 10 percent of people in the world today produce 50 percent of the greenhouse gases. There's a very simple way that any well-to-do person can have an, a hugely oversized impact on, the, on the, 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 the environmental problem. Live as though they're poor. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. And again, you've done it. I've done it. We know that it's perfectly possible to live a comfortable, decent, humane life uh, you know, on much less money than most people spend. And but um, try talking to people, again, whose identity is caught up in being the special people. Well, I think this is one of the things, and, and you know, if this was said on a sort of a news show in the UK or in the US, you'd, I would be scolded for it. But I have been, of course. I've, I've, I've been there where, you know, as you said, you know, you're budgeting for meals, you're budgeting yeah. for food and for, for shelter, right? So I can I can sort of say from just from my own experience and from people I've seen that a lot of people extend their poverty because they buy into an ideal which mm-hmm. just simply you, you know if you don't have to stretch for these things and no. so a lot of people end up becoming poor because they 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 go a little bit up the ladder and now think well I need to have this 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 and this now. yeah and of course that's that's a very important thing because they're again they're caught up they're caught up in the image just like the environmentalists we were talking about who are caught up in the image of saving the rainforest saving the planet and it's all the image and not the reality in the same way you have people who yeah you know I've 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 climbed the ladder I'm not like those people who I used to be therefore I've got to buy this I've got to buy that I've got to buy the other thing even if that means that I have less free you know free money to spend than the people I I'm, I'm I claim I would despise mm-hmm. yeah so the big question economically speaking what what is to be done do you think <laughs> well here again the first thing, the the thing that the rock on which most of these questions break is individual choice. Um, you cannot save the planet unless you're willing to change your own lifestyle. Equally, you cannot make for a sane economy 
unless you're willing to change your own lifestyle, unless you're willing to change how you relate to the to the economic world. And at this point, with the economy being as as toxic and as um, booby trapped, frankly, as it is. The major factor there is um, detaching as much of your life from the economic realm as you can. Um, you do not have to spend money. There's a lot of things where people go out of their way to spend money because they've been taught that's that's how you that's how you do X. How you how you have fun always amounts to spending lots of money. Sometimes obscene, absurd, preposterous mm-hmm. amounts of money. And then you're sitting there going, "I'm having fun. I'm going to convince myself that I'm having fun because I spent all that money having fun." <clears throat> there's there's a lot of that. Um, so. Take take your habits of having fun and say, okay, what can I do without spending a pen, without spending one penny? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot. And look at other things that you have other needs. How many of them can you fill by? Can you fill without spending a penny? How many of them can you can you meet spending a lot less money than you do? Walking back your participation in the consumer economy is is a truly revolutionary act at this point, because it's by your entrapment in that economy that you're running on that endless hamster wheel, um, never getting anywhere, but exhausting yourself. Walk back, step back, you know, um, in in terms that I used in a slightly different context, collapse now and avoid the rush. Hmm. Um, very likely. Most of us are going to be a lot poorer in the years ahead because we're moving into a series of economic crises that are very likely to reduce standards of living worldwide. And especially um, in the United States, in the English-speaking world generally, a lot of us are going to be poor. Um, Go there first. Learn how to do it. Um, Decrease your outgo before you have to. So you can provide yourself with the tools and the skills and the knowledge you need to do it in a graceful and effective way, and you can thrive. And so that, that's, that's one of the basic rules that I'm recommending to people here, just, you know, back away a little bit from the consumer economy. Beyond that, um, it's really going to take a certain, a certain critical mass of people who are willing to look at the situation and look at the economy and look at the, the problems with the way things are being done these days before any change can happen on a collective level. That can start by people educating themselves and, and, and you know, helping other people to educate themselves. But it's going to be a while before there are enough people, I think, who, who, are, willing to, who are willing to grasp the fact that they're basically in a rigged casino. And that um, just getting hired by the um, by the management is not actually going to change the situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything you'd like to add about the the, the wealth of nature? Um, I was I, when when I reviewed it um, in order to do to do the revision just a little while ago for the new edition that'll be out shortly. I was, I was really pleased. I thought that it really did address the, um, the situation that we're in very well for a book that's what, 10 years old now. Um, it, it anticipated a lot of things that were going to happen and it's, it's analysis still, I think works fairly well. Um, I was hoping it would have more of an impact than it did. I was hoping that more people would read it. That would spark more discussion. It got a certain amount of that. But of course, not from economists. Hmm. So, quite a few books are being re-released soon. Are you, and uh, also, are you are you are you working on anything new? Oh, always, always, always. Yeah, always. 
Um, yeah, let's, I mean, in, I haven't been doing much in the future of industrial society range of things. I kind of, I mean, I wrote what, 10 books on that subject, um, during the, during the last peak oil spike. And that kind of covered most of the ground, starting with the long descent and ending with the retro future. I, 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 I don't know that I had, that I had at that point much more to say at this point, um, I'm going to be writing some more um, on my blog and so on about about the current state of climate change and some things like that because that's picking up. But um, but I've got I've got a new book on Druidry coming out early in the year um, in terms of books that are that are being reprinted. Um, there's the wealth of nature. The ecotechnic future is about to be out. It would it would have been out a little while ago except there were some delays. Yet another round of shortages. You know, we've all heard that. Um, also, the retro future and um, after progress, two of my other books from the peak oil years are, are going to be coming out. I haven't started revising them yet because um, they won't be available for reprinting until October. But those are those are on the agenda. Um, let's see what else. Um, my book Monsters, which is actually my best-selling book of, so far of all time, um, is coming out with a third edition that'll be out this fall. And um, other than that, we'll see. Mm, okay. That's okay. very good. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me.